Welcome to the Elephant Tales podcast from Wildlife SOS, where we bring you the intimate stories and behind-the-scenes perspectives with the people working to save India's wildlife. Hi, I'm Nikki Sharp, Executive Director of Wildlife SOS. In this first episode of Elephant Tales, we will sit down with co-founder Gita Seshamani in our offices in Delhi to chat about how Wildlife SOS got started and those first visionary life-saving efforts. But first, since this is our premier podcast, here's a brief overview of Wildlife SOS for those of you who are new to us. Wildlife SOS is a nonprofit based in Delhi with 12 wildlife sanctuaries, hospitals, and rescue centers located throughout India. We started saving and caring for injured and displaced wildlife in 1995 with a small group of individuals dedicated to making lasting change to protect the health of India's wildlife, natural heritage, and forest ecosystems. Today, the organization has evolved to actively rescuing, treating, and protecting Indian wildlife, releasing animals who can go back to their wild habitats, and providing sanctuary and lifetime care for those animals that can't be released. We are committed to conserving habitats, studying biodiversity, conducting research, and creating alternative and sustainable livelihoods for communities that depend on wildlife for sustenance. We are best known for our work to end India's barbaric 400-year-old dancing bear practice, Raju the Crying Elephant, our new TV series on Nat Geo Wild, and our harrowing adventures rescuing elephants, snakes, leopards, and other wildlife on the busy streets of India. So today we are going to be talking about how Wildlife SOS got started. So um, for those of you who don't know Gita, Gita is a remarkable woman and she actually started Friendico Sika, which is an organization based in Delhi that works to save street dogs, cats, donkeys, mules, um, and all sorts of other animals. So she had her plate full when in the mid-90s she set out to solve another problem. So Gita, why don't you start by telling us what was going on? Well, uh, because Friendico's had a large hospital and a clinic by the early 90s, when Delhi started expanding and there was a lot of construction, we started getting strange animals coming to our domestic animal shelter. So we'd get civet cats, we got hedgehogs, we got fox, and this was really a a problem for us because we could hardly take good care of them with dogs and cats and donkeys and horses. So we decided that um, we needed a separate place. And by that time, Karthik had come to Delhi and Karthik was really good at catching reptiles and snakes. And that was the other problem we were facing, that because Delhi had so much of unplanned construction happening all over the place, people were getting snakes and reptiles and lizards in their house, which they didn't know how to deal with. And they would invariably call Frenicos for that, for help in that. So we decided that we needed a helpline which would only deal with um, urban wildlife. And that's how we, all the wildlife SOS had not registered itself. We began, we began as a kind of an urban wildlife rescue service. And so it would be just Karthik and me in our beat up vehicle. And we'd go mainly during the nights and we'd find ourselves rescuing snakes and um, all kinds of small mammals unexpectedly. There'd be bats, there'd be barn owls, there would be things people would call us for because they'd panic, they don't want them in their house. And at the 
initially we didn't know where to take them. We had very little space. But we acquired a small piece of land. We rented a small piece of land and we started taking care of the animals over there. And that's how Wildlife SOS really began as an urban wildlife rescue kind of helpline. So you guys were driving around in an ambulance rescuing animals that were in people's apartments, that were in you know, businesses. Is there any story that really stands out for you in terms of something that you remember in those first you know, years of, of working to help urban wildlife that you hadn't actually been working with before? I think what stands out for me is um, I had never nurtured so many orphan babies as I did at that time. So sometimes uh, it would be orphaned Nilgai fawns, just a month old, and I'd have to feed them with a milk bottle, and it was for me a unique experience. Or it would be a lot of birds, particularly raptors, that would be um, suffering from either heat stroke or organophosphate poisoning, and I had to bring them home and uh, take care of them and medicate them. For me, these were all novel experiences. I was more used to working with dogs and cats or even a baby donkey, but this was all very uh, different for me. I remember particularly a pair of jackal pups that I hand-raised and inflicted on a friend of mine. And one day she called me up and she said, I really don't think I can keep these pups any longer. And I went over and our house was a mess. They had dug holes 20 feet deep in her garden. They'd surfaced in the neighbor's garden. I didn't realize the jackals were such good diggers. Mm -hmm. So then we finally got permission to release them in a wildlife sanctuary. Or the other fun thing was um, birds, rescuing birds. Uh, in those days, the bird sellers used to trap a lot of Indian birds and sell them in Old Delhi in particular. So we were forever rescuing these birds because, because of our wildlife act, they're not allowed to keep uh, Indian birds in captivity. So we'd rescue a lot of these and then we'd go up and get permission to release them in the jungles. That was quite a gratifying experience. So I think it was really um, a new world for me. And I had never handled snakes before. So this was the first time I got up real close with reptiles and spiny tail lizards and monitor lizards and I learned to respect them. So for me, it was a whole new world altogether. So Gita, you uh, rented this land and you started bringing animals to the land. And these are animals that you would keep on the land that couldn't be released into the wild. So you ended up providing lifetime care. Is that correct? Well, we started by giving, we were lucky enough that in the beginning, most of these animals could be released. And we started working closely with the forest department so that we could leave them in their natural habitat. Uh, it was a lot easier in the early days, but uh, as work got more intense, we felt the need to organize ourselves into a non-government charity, a, a sort of a non-profit, and that's when we decided to register ourselves as Wildlife SOS, so we would have some kind of authority and integrity when we were, when we were rescuing and releasing animals. So the real reason for registering ourselves was because we were dealing with large numbers of birds and small mammals all the time. So did you have uh, lots of money coming in to help you with these programs in the very, very early days? Well, I wish I could say that. No, it was entirely done on just my salary and whatever Karthik was earning at that time. So both of us uh, just put our own means together and we, uh, we did 
everything with whatever we could afford on our salaries. There was definitely no... In the early days, we weren't asking for donations. We were just trying to do everything ourselves. We hadn't hired staff. Uh, we didn't think in terms of increasing uh, um, and having a fleet of ambulances. We utilized the veterinary services of Friendico's. We got the vet there to take care of our animals if they were injured, treated them. Uh, it was... Uh, it was just really just passion and affection for the animals that was driving us at that point. So Wildlife SOS right now is really known for the work that the organization did to solve the dancing bear problem in India. So how did that get started? How did you transition from um, a couple of caring people who are trying to help uh, and wildlife that's trapped in the city to becoming an organization that was really trying to end a, a major problem? Well, it's a really interesting story because a lot of things happen at the same time. And so whether you call it destiny or karma, uh, what actually happened was I was on the Animal Welfare Board of India and I started getting letters from our secretary saying, Geeta, can you find out? We're getting a lot of mail where people are complaining about these dancing bears on the way from Delhi to Agra to Jaipur. And is there any way in which you can find out where do these bears come from? People are upset, tourists are upset. That happened. Simultaneously, a friend of mine who was a filmmaker uh, came to me and she said, would you like to spend a weekend in one of the villages outside Delhi? But she said, uh, you have to promise me you're not going to lose your temper when you go there. I said, why? She said, because there were a lot of wildlife in captivity and I... I'm going to be filming it and I need you to stay calm. And I said, yes, of course. And I didn't realize it was a Kalandar village. And that's where I saw my dance, the dancing bears tied to trees, painful muzzles, um, pus and maggots oozing out of their noses. I saw a great horned owls. I saw mongoose. I saw monkeys. I saw all kinds of animals trapped in small cages. But I also saw the acute poverty of the people. I saw, I stayed there for two nights with them. And it was, I can say, one of those changing moments in my life because it was just 40 kilometers outside Delhi. I had had a very privileged life as an army officer's daughter um, and I really didn't know my own country that well. And when I went and stayed in that village, I saw such abject poverty that a woman, if she owned two saris and had a set of clothes to change into when she bathed, she thought she was well off. Uh, just tin vessels, four or five, constituted a kitchen. And their children had practically worn no clothes till they were six or seven. Uh, I was like in a state of complete shock. And yet at the same time, I couldn't believe I was seeing these animals suffering all around them and that these people were earning a living from, making, from exhibiting these animals, dragging them all over the place, selling amulets and talismans, but gathering a crowd around them because of a civet cat or because of a mongoose or because of a sloth bear. And um, I think I was so upset and disturbed. I remember I came back and I wrote a three-page report to the Animal Welfare Board of India. And I said, could I please be allowed to find out from where did they get these animals? How did they treat them? How would their socioeconomic status? And maybe just do a report. So for me, for me, the stay in that Kalandar village for two days was an emotionally defining moment. Um, I felt... I felt such a disconnect from what I what I now realize is the real India. And I realized that people 
can often go without food and can often be without healthcare and education. And we were just 40 kilometers outside Delhi. So I got back home and I wrote this impassioned report to the Animal Welfare Board of India. And I asked permission to be able to do a study of the dancing bears as well as of um, the community that was using them. And I would say really that's what started it. And by that time, Karthik was free from his tiger project. And I asked him whether he'd like to join me on this because I realized that we'd, we'd actually be passing right through India trying to search for these villages, search for where these tribal people could be uh, wandering, where they could be staying, and I would need help. So Kartik joined me. And I think that began the most, the most exciting two years of my life because we traveled by car uh, the length and breadth of at least five states. We found over 70 villages. I can't even call them villages, settlements really, where these people stayed. We stayed with them. Uh, we interacted with them. We met with a lot of hostility and anger. Uh, they would point to the tikka, the red dot that I wear on my forehead, and they would tell me, why do you come to us? Do you want to become a politician? Are you coming to me for votes? Are you seeking um, some sort of public office? And we would say, no. We just want to help you. We want to know how you stay, how you live. And uh, we are very touched by the fact that the simplest of needs are not met with. They stay in tents, they stay in uh, tarpaulin, under tarpaulin and bamboo thatched roofings. They stay in the open. In some of the states which we went to, uh, especially uh, Eastern India, we saw that they were just living out in the open. Uh, they hardly had any amenities. There was a lot of child marriage. There was uh, endemic tuberculosis and hepatitis amongst them. And the animals suffered. The people suffered. The animals suffered. So I think that's what made Kartik and me decide that if we were going to do anything to help the bears, we would have to help this community too. Uh, this community had suffered along with the animals and just didn't seem to realize how marginalized they were, how... Everything else that was happening in rural India had passed them by and that life could be better for them if they just lived within the law and maybe changed the way they were living. So I think we were, we were motivated by that to give them a fair deal but also to take the suffering animals away from them and give them a fair deal. So uh, what year was this in, uh, Gita? Just give us a perspective of exactly when this was taking place. So 95, 96, 97, we spent with the Kalandars traveling all over. 98, we presented our report to our government. By that time, we'd also gone with them when they were acquiring their cubs. We saw how the underworld markets were functioning. Uh, we saw that it was such an old tradition that was such a... Um, strange understanding that they had with the tribals in the forest, how the cubs would come out, and not just uh, sloth bear cubs. It could be a leopard cub, it could be parakeets, etc. So we started alerting the authorities that this is a tremendous loss to Indian wildlife. And the chief customer for all this is this community. So if we could perhaps take care of these consumers of wildlife, we could really go a long way to prevent these animals leaving the jungle and being poached and being brought out. And I'm happy to say that the uh, ministry was very responsive, very positive, 
And uh, they responded by saying, well, what kind of a solution do you have? What's your recommendation? And we, rec we recommended that we do a rehabilitation project for the tribal people and we get them to surrender their bears. Now, we could have certainly used the law and we could have labeled them all as criminals. And uh, a lot of people advised us that we go that way. But in those three or four years that we lived with the tribe, the kind of bond that was forged and the fact that they trusted us, they trusted us more than any government authority or anybody who'd ever approached them, um, social service workers or politicians, we couldn't have betrayed that trust. So we said, no, we were not going to, uh, we were not going to use the law. We were going to ask them to surrender the animals. And everyone said, it just won't work. They won't do it. It's a 400, 500-year-old practice. Uh, why would they do that? And we said, let's give it a try. And I'm happy to say it worked. It worked beautifully. They first brought in six bears uh, in 2002. And the first set of bears got surrendered in the Christmas, Christmas Eve of 2002. And um, it's amazing because the last dancing bear came in on Christmas Eve 2009. And we could not have imagined that in seven years we would actually take in all the dancing bears. It was amazing for us. And um, I must say, I am always so grateful that we got the, the love and the affection and the trust of the community. Because without that, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, the message spread right up to West Bengal, for example. Uh, West Bengal calendars contacted us that they wanted to surrender their animals. So we started a center there in West Bengal, uh, Karnataka, Usually it's so difficult, but we got the cooperation of the Andhra Pradesh and the Karnataka Kalandars, and they were ready to surrender, so we started the Bangalore Center. And everywhere the Forest Department was so positive. That's the other great thing. So I can't help feeling um, that there was some kind of a divine positive energy, because I see how difficult it is sometimes for a positive conservation project to work, and how many obstacles there can be of many kinds. So now when I look back on the project, I'm amazed at the positivity from the forest department, uh, the ease with which they gave us land to on which we could house our, our bears, uh, the manner in which the Kalandra community uh, cooperated with us, particularly when I remember the early days when we got chased with axes and with butcher's knives and they, we had to run out of the villages to save our lives. So when I remember those days, I think this was really uh, an amazing conservation success. It is a model for conservation around the world. What I am fascinated by is a lot of times there's a lot of, I don't know if the word's excuses, but reasons for why uh, certain programs aren't working or why the why there's no one's trying to to um, save a certain species or work in a certain area and a lot of times you hear it's poverty you hear it's cultural and you hear there aren't the laws and what i find fascinating is that uh, you had history here where you had it going on for 400 years you did have to deal with a lot of poverty and you had to deal with just uh, you know some of some of the cultural challenges, and despite that, you did it in seven years, which really does make it an incredible victory for conservation and a model. 
What I would um, ask you is because a lot of people around the world um, want to want to see more successes in different kinds of conservation efforts. What would your advice be for those who are trying to help um, in some sort of conservation effort? Is there any kind of wisdom that you would impart to them? I don't know about wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hesitate to use that word, but yes, experience perhaps tells me that you've got to work from within the community. I think the reason we succeeded was because we were very patient. It was difficult. Uh, You must remember that we went in because we loved those animals. We couldn't bear to see the bears suffering. And it took a lot of patience and a lot of self-control not to to be upset when we would see over 1,200 bears that we counted. Uh, being danced and dragged around or the cubs when they would come in and the pain of having to undergo the muzzle uh, the muzzle being pierced and the canines being broken but the important thing was to make them realize that they had to stop doing this that there was some inherent cruelty in their tradition that um, they weren't benefiting by it so I think patience is the key and if we had not had that community participation it would have taken us much longer because we would have been using the law, it would have been punishment, we would have been chasing them, they would have been hiding. Uh, The animals would not have benefited by anything like that. So I think I would advise anybody who wants to conserve a species, and if that species is under threat because of poaching, and that's what we wanted to do, we wanted to stop the poaching of the sloth bear from the wild. It was a Schedule 1 animal, and when we sat and did our homework and we wrote our report, we realized that more than 200 cubs were coming out of the forest every year. How long could the sloth bear population in the wild have sustained a blow like that? Uh, Definitely not, the numbers were dwindling. So it was to protect the animal in the wild that we had to do this extremely roundabout uh, method of conservation. So if anybody is going to protect a species, they have to first find out the threats. If the threats are from specific communities, you've got to start with education and awareness of the community, get their participation, make them understand, and then perhaps, and then of course hit at the consumer community too. So if it's a community that is doing the poaching and a community that is doing the consuming, both have to be educated and have to participate in the conservation project. Uh, That's about what I take back from the Dancing Bear Project. Well, once again, congratulations on such an incredible success. If you would like to learn more about Wildlife SOS or give to support the rescue and long-term care of the elephants, bears, leopards, and other wildlife at our sanctuaries, please visit wildlifesos.org. We hope our new podcast series helps brighten your day and warm your heart with the tremendous impact we can make together. Thanks for listening. 